Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me writer Jeremy Drysdale. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Stuart. Well, that was take two, dear listener, but you won't, you won't get to hear take one. Um, right, Jeremy, you're, you're a writer who comes from an um, advertising background. Is that right? That's right, yes. Initially, I was a, uh, a copywriter uh, and then an advertising creative and then a a creative director of an agency, and uh, then I uh, moved into uh, screenwriting. So was, I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly different disciplines, so what was the, was the, was the drive always there to be script writing and the job was something you just did? Well, initially, uh, no. I just got into it because I was on a train as a kid, uh, sort of uh, 18, 19, and got chatting with somebody about boxing, and it turned out that this was a guy who ran a small advertising agency, and he, uh, we got on, and he asked me to come and be a runner for him, which I did, and then there was a, a spot uh, as a copywriter, or a trainee copywriter, which I took because I had more money, hmm. uh, and then I kind of grew up from there. I always liked writing, uh, and I, I enjoyed the, the idea of distilling an idea into a sentence or a few sentences and, and uh, creating a need for that, uh, that product to be purchased. Um, and, you know, it's quite a good a bit of training, really, to, uh, to be a screenwriter because you're really doing the same thing. You're distilling something down to its most basic elements and then using those elements to breathe life into an idea which entertains. And it's, you know, it's not that different really, from advertising. Well, I spoke to a speechwriting friend of mine, and he was basically talking about getting, getting chief executives sits down with to, to sort of get it down to that one line, and I was like, oh, yeah, what, like a log line in screenwriting? And he was like, yeah, very much like that. It's exactly right. I also did speech. And um, uh, it's, it's the same thing. You basically, you take everything, and you squeeze it down until you have your log line, and then you build it back up again in the right way. And it's exactly the same discipline. So what was the sort of transition from you, you know, having that as a, you've trained and you, it's become your livelihood, to, to developing, you know, the, the, the different aspects that make you a screenwriter? How did you make that transition? Well, I'd been in advertising for 20-odd years, and I'd done pretty well at it. I was a, a creative director, and I was, I was on a good salary, and I was really, really bored by the whole process, um, and uh, I read somewhere, I'd, I'd started trying to experiment with different ways of writing different things, I'm not, I'm not deep enough to do poetry, um, <laughs> and I thought that, uh, I was a big film fan, I thought it might be nice to write scripts, so I kind of, I wrote a couple of really, really bad scripts, and, um, and then wrote a couple more which weren't quite so bad, and and then I read somewhere that um, an American producer had um, had taken the rights to No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs, the uh, autobiography of John Lydon, Johnny Rotten. Okay. And he was going to make a movie of this thing. And I thought, well, I've read the book. I was a big fan of the Sex Pistols. And I, uh, I thought, well, this can't be written by an American. It has to be written by an Irishman. And if it's not written by an Irishman, it has to be written by a Brit. So... I managed to get hold of this guy's phone number in the States and I, I uh, kept ringing him up and he wouldn't take my calls because he didn't know who I was. So I kept getting his secretary and eventually she said, he's not going to speak to you uh, because he doesn't know who you are and you won't tell me why you're ringing. <laughs> but if you give me, if I give you his email address, you can write to him via email. So that was as close as I was going to get. So I sent him an email there's a guy called Stephen Nemeth who, who uh, ran a company called Rhino Films, which was an offshoot of Rhino Music. Um, and I sent him an email and I said, look, um, I understand you're making a movie about no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. And um, you cannot hire an American writer for that because they won't know what they're doing. You have to hire an Irishman or at least a Brit to do the, to write the script. Um, 
and he didn't respond. Uh, and so I kept emailing him, and eventually he did respond, because I think he realised that I just wasn't going to stop. And he said, um, he said, look, um, we're having, uh, we've, we've isolated six writers that, that we would like to uh, put in front of John, um, and I suppose I can add you to that list, but uh, we will not pay any of your costs, um, and uh, we will, you know, it's up to you. You can come along and spend 15 minutes and meet him, but, you know, it's nothing, you know, you're just on the list. Uh, I forgot to mention also that I had sent him some stuff that I'd written, uh, okay. which he had glanced at, I think. Um, so this was fine, but, you know, obviously they were in L.A. and I'm, yeah, I'm in Surrey. So I, I had to buy a ticket to go out to, to spend 15 minutes uh, having a meeting with this guy. And uh, I figured it was probably worth worth doing so I flew out uh, I was first there were the meetings took place at a place called shutters on the beach um, in Los Angeles really lovely place and I uh, I sat down I was the first one to meet him uh, and we just chatted and um, they couldn't really get rid of me I just I was getting on so well with him that they they kept looking at their watches and I presume there were other people sort of shuffling around in the background, but, but I just wasn't shifting until they physically had to move me away, which they didn't do because he liked me. And eventually he said, uh, yeah, uh, he can do it. And I uh, <laughs> said, well, we've got other people for you to see. And he went, no, nah, they're all yanks. I don't want them. Well, he can do it. So I, I, I kind of got the job just by pure bloody mindedness and a huge amount of, of good luck. And a huge amount of chutzpah. <laughs> well, I suppose. I mean, <coughs> the thing is, if you just assume that you can do something, you're either going to be proved right or you're going to be proved wrong. If you're proved wrong you're, uh, and you learn from it, you're actually better off than you were when you started. Hmm. If, you, if you're proved right, then you've got the gig. So actually, there's not really much downside uh, to giving it a shot. No, 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 true, no, I'm, it's I just, I, I come from a music journalist background, and I know people that have even tried to just interview John Lydon, never mind work with him, um, you know, he's, ne he's, ne he's not the easiest of characters in the world, so oh, the idea of me oh, making a connection with him. Yeah, he hated me after a while, it all went badly wrong, um, <laughs> but, uh, so the film never got made, if you're looking for the, for the movie on uh, Netflix, you're not going to find it, because it, it never happened. But um, it was it was my way in really, and I got paid to do the work, and um, it enabled me to get an agent, and not particularly good agent at that time, but an agent nevertheless. Mm. Um, and so uh, I just kept going really. I just uh, I didn't let the fact that it didn't work out um, cause me any problems. I just sort of I kept going and just kept making a noise and kept banging my head against the door and. You know, every time I heard that there was something around that, that might be something I could do, I I just made myself into a pain in the arse. I was always polite. Mm -hmm. uh, I was never rude, but I was I was very firm, and I, I really uh, I didn't really take no for an answer. And there's clearly there was no point in in you know continuing. Americans guess... actually like that. British people don't like it, um, but Americans do. They as long as you don't piss them off. That sort of determination is a good thing as far as they're concerned. I think it's back to what you said before. If this person, if they're viewing it from their point of view, if they're seeing someone who's determined, then that belief can also mean that they can do it. So it's it, if you can see it from that, if you can see that side of it, then it's all opportunity, isn't it? And yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's your what? So what? What's your writing habit? I mean, how did you develop? I mean, because script writing is seen to be as much of a craft as it is an art, because obviously there's, there's the art of coming up with something, but there's also the craft of, of making what is a screenplay. Uh, well, I've got, I've got a very specific way that I work, which is really tedious and probably not for most people. Um, my logline, my one-line cell, becomes my script. The same document becomes my finished script, as much as a script can be finished. So I'll work on coming up with um, with a logline. I'll um, when I'm happy with it, I'll put it into final draft, 
Mm-hmm. And I will then extend that log line into um, a one-page outline. I'll then um, turn that one-page outline, still in the same document, into um, a short step outline. And within the short step outline, I will mark down my beats. So I'll have first act break, second act break, midpoint, all of that stuff I write in block capitals in the final draft document uh, in the appropriate place. And as I expand what was my one-line cell and is then my step outline into a detailed step outline of maybe 30 pages, I'll constantly check uh, my, my breaks, my structure, to make sure that I'm in a good place, that my midpoint is roughly where it should be, that my app breaks are roughly right. And it means that I catch any um, structural faults very early. Mm. Um, and by the time I end up with a detailed act break, by, by which I mean I've got every single, um, uh, sorry, once I've uh, finished my detailed step outline, um, I'll have every single scene pretty much in there without dialogue, and I'll have all of my structure points marked in there and highlight, so I will know that the thing works. I'll know that I've got a midpoint, I'll know that I've got my three-act structure, I'll know that everything is right, and that will have taken me two months, probably, to get to that point. And it's the hardest two months that you spend because it's just boring. It's so dull because you're not doing any dialogue at all. All you're doing is story beats and building a story. And you're getting headaches because, the, you know, you've got a whole section of the step outline where not enough happens or your focus is in the wrong place, or this or that, and it's really, really fucking tedious. (laughs) But when you finish it and you've got it right, you've then got perhaps 40, 30, 40 pages of step outline, and it's rock solid. You've got a proper story that evolves in the correct way. All of your scene breaks are right. Uh, Your act breaks are right. You've got you, you know your story is being told because you know everything that's going to happen in it. There's going to be no surprises. And then it's easy. Then you're just putting the dialogue in. And so that last bit is quite fun. When you say you're spending two months, are you saying you're spending 60 days doing this? Yeah. So it is, it is an intent. This 30, 30, 40 pages outline, you're going to, you're going to crack open from a, from a, from, um, from a log line that you've, you've decided is the way forward. Yeah. (coughs) That's, That's 60 days. That's, there's a lot of souls. There must be a lot of staring at the wall, thinking, and it's pretty hard. But looking at the window and whatever. Well, yeah, I don't tend to do many, many. You know, they say writing is rewriting. Mm. Uh, the, the the benefit of this is that all of the hard work is front loaded. Mm. Once you finish the script, it's fucking brilliant because because everything's right because it's you've already crash-tested the structure. You already know the story works. Mm. So you don't really have to rewrite that much before you can take it out and try and sell it. You just really have notes from your producer. Uh, You might have notes from the director that they bring on board. You're probably not going to have to do more than a couple of polishes or perhaps one rewrite, and it's ready to go because you've done that really, really, really tough work up front. And the discipline... Is all about that. If if you can do that, then it'll pay off in spades further down the road. Given given that that kind of process you're going to commit to when you're developing a script, what what what's what's the kind of process before then where you're you're deciding this is the idea I'm going to take forward? How do you sort of? It has to be. It has to be world class. The idea has to be world class. Okay. It has to be so good that. Um, if you got that famous elevator pitch with Harvey Weinstein, he would buy it in the elevator. It has to, because there's, you know, there are, what is this figure that everybody talks about? There are 300,000 scripts registered every year and there are 300 movies made. Hmm. Something, I don't know whether those figures are exactly right, but it's pretty close, I think. Yeah. Unless the idea is world class, unless it has got a great hook. I don't do really deep films. I don't do films that have a period feel to them. I don't do, you know, really intense drama. 
I, I tend to write big action movies. And so it's all about the idea. It's all about the hook. Um, uh, the drop, um, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, I wanted to write a real-time movie. And there have only been, as far as I'm aware, perhaps five real-time movies ever made. And only one or two of them work. And so, you know, you're already starting with something that, if you can pull it off, is, is going to stand out from everything else. Because there are very, very few of these things out there. And um, so you're already ahead of the game. And then if you can put that, if you can build in a rock-solid hook within that, what they would call a high concept, a high concept hook. You're kind of there, it, it, you know. If it, if it is different from everything else that's out there, if it stands aside, and it's great when you write it, you can't, you can't just do a good draft. It has to be really, really great. Then you've got a good chance of selling it. Where do you go for your setting opinions? You know, like where you. Know, I've got, uh, I've got um, uh, a team of four or five people who read my stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and are pretty tough on me. Um, my wife is the first person who reads it. Um, if it if it's not good enough, she'll tell me because that's where the food money is coming from. So she'll be very clear. Um, I've got I've got a, a, a very well known British film journalist who, who reads my stuff. Has worked in the film journalism market for fifteen years. Uh, I've got a, a high profile American. Uh, film producer who I've known for well over a decade um, and I've got an American producer who reads my scripts and, and finds any non-American bits that are in there that that I need to change to make them into uh, American. So I have about half a dozen people that read my stuff and of course I've got my manager in the States and my agent in the UK. And and does that, do you, do you find that the, that the um differentiating between their views and, and, and obviously where you get repetitive ones you're kind of thinking oh well they, this must be right this is definitely what I've got to fix or this is definitely what I've got to accentuate um, <coughs> yeah I mean quite often people will give you really bad notes but um, but you, you don't you don't necessarily have to uh, follow their note what you have to do is look at the stupid note and say in your head why have they why have they come up with this note? Because this note makes no sense. And quite often you'll find, if you think about the note, you'll find that it's something else that they haven't picked up on or that doesn't work for them. And that, that's why they're giving you a note about something slightly different. Um, and sometimes you can disregard the notes. You know, as long as you're not doing it from a place of vanity, where you know, or from a place of not wanting to do the hard work, uh, you can say, well... Um, actually, I'm. I mean, I've just written a, a big, uh, which I've just finished. I'm just going to send it off to my, uh, my manager to send out uh, today or tomorrow. Hmm. And his his note to me, one of his notes to me was, uh, it, it's a too down at the end. You know, it's too quiet. And I've looked at that note and I've ignored it because the film is so full of colour and noise and movement that I wanted to to finish that way. I wanted the tone to mirror the tone right at the start. Hmm. So, you know, you can ignore some of these notes, uh, but, you know, you have to interrogate them and work out what they're trying to say and whether they really can make it better. So it's a balance between your intention and, and what maybe how they're seeing your script? Yeah. I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll miss bits. I mean, I wrote a, a horror film which had a twist in it, which made the whole thing make sense. And a couple of people came back to me and said, I didn't like the end. I didn't really get the end. And, and um, of course, the end was great. The end was fine. But what they meant was that they'd missed the twist. Because hmm. I hadn't been clear enough about it. It was, you know, I hadn't been overt enough. And because they didn't get the twist, they then, um, uh, they then didn't, um, they didn't like the end. Because the, the twist made the end what it was. So... You know, again, their note made sense only in, in as much as the reasons behind them not getting uh, the point was the mistake that I'd made, not the actual point that they made, if that actually is clear, which I don't think it is. But I think you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah no, 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 no. It's clear enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, now, you're a, fa you're a fan of the 
when you talked before about beats and stuff, so and and I've read I've read elsewhere you you're 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 a fan of the save the cat sort of beat sheet if of any as any is that right? Yeah, um, I, I I like it. I don't think you should live or die by it, but I like it. Um, I think it's a logical, simple uh, process that he sets out. Um, Blake was a really nice man. Actually, I knew him. Uh, and the reason I like it, I think, is that it's straightforward. I mean, somebody, when I started out, somebody bought me, Robert McKay, and I just looked at this enormous book telling you how to write films. And I just thought, you know, this is, this, this is just not right. It, the thing is 380 pages or something. I mean, that's It's on just, my shelf. Oh, have you read it? No, I've read, read Save the Cat, though. Well, of course, because Save the Cat, uh, partly you read it, I guess, because he's actually written movies that have sold for a lot of money, which Robert yeah. McKee hasn't. But another reason is he sort of distills everything down into a very simple process, and you kind of look at it, and you think, yeah, well, that, that makes sense. Um, the Robert McKee thing seems to be so prescriptive that, you know, I mean, I just would lose the will to live, I think. Do you, do you think, in terms of your... the, the Going back to your your kind of two month sort of getting the get beating the story up and building it down, knocking it down, building it up and stuff. Do you think that? And it's almost like there's a belief that you'll get the the answer will come out of it. I mean, does that come from experience of sort of working on say ad campaigns where obviously you're having to sort of invent someone's brand, or which is which obviously doesn't exist when you start, and then eventually you come out and everyone goes, oh look at that, it's bleeding obvious, wasn't it? Look at that, it's the perfect brand. Yeah. When really you start with a blank bit of paper, which, you know, essentially... Yeah, there's always an answer. There's mm. always an answer. So um, uh, I can't really say too much about the thing I've just finished. Mm. But it starts... The, the, the premise is, is pretty close to being impossible. Um, and you kind of look at it, uh, and immediately you think, well, I would see that film. Um, because it, how would he pull it off? You know, how would whoever the actor is pull it off, not how would the writer pull it off, because people don't ever think about the writer. How would Denzel Washington or whoever it might be pull that off? And so, you know, you're, the strength of that idea, and I know it's irritating that I can't tell you what the idea is, but I can't yet, but the strength mm. of the idea is that people will automatically want to go to the cinema to see it because it's great. It's really challenging and it's really interesting. How would you do that? The, 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 the downside of that, which is pretty huge, is that everything hangs on you being able to successfully sell your solution uh, to an audience. The moment you have a coincidence or somebody looks the wrong way, which means that this thing can happen, which the whole thing hangs on, or anything like that, you, you lose the audience. It has to be, it has to work. And if you can make it work, they'll pay money to go see it. But if you can't make it work, if you cheat, the first person to go into the cinema to pay money to see it will come out and say to everybody, especially now in the age of the internet, it, this is shit, he's cheated, it doesn't work. You know, or you know, there's a coincidence that you wouldn't believe. You know, And so it all goes back to that thing where if you're going to spend four months of your life in a room on your own, typing, um, which, you know, this, let's face it, there are, can't be many jobs less interesting than that. The <laughs> only win for you is that you are coming up with something that is great. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's me or that that's what I do. I'm just saying that if you don't go into that room thinking that that's what you're going to emerge with, don't go into the room at all. Because No, no, just... I think you're right. I think you've got to aspire to it or else you just churning it out aren't you yeah if you don't already subscribe to Britflix just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly thank you what's your I mean Go and think. Picturing you're alone in your room for for four months. What? What? How do you overcome uh, writer's block? Where does that feature in your? Well, I don't have writer's block. I have uh, idea block where I'm. I've got my high concept idea, my starting point, and I can't work out how to make it happen. 
Um, but once I've done all that, you see, I think the process that I that I go through to create the script, which we talked about earlier, yeah, doesn't really allow for writer's block because mm. you're starting with structure. So it, it's you know he goes there, this happens, the, the the car comes, there's an explosion here. You know there isn't really anything writer's blockery about that. It's just getting somebody from A to B. And stuff happens to him along the way. So um, because I kind of strip out a lot of the creative elements of writing in that early block of work, mm. you don't really have writer's block then because it's just process. It's how do I get this guy from here to here and how can I make all these things happen to him? And you don't, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an exercise. You sit there with a pen and a, a, a pad and you think, right, well, this can happen and that moves him over to this... I did a script recently which took place all over Europe. You think, okay, well, if he's in Vienna there and she's in Paris, then how are the two of them going to connect? So that thing doesn't really allow for writer's block. And then when you've got through that bit of the process and you're doing dialogue, well, that's the most fun in the world. I mean, dialogue is great. Mm. So, you know, I don't have writer's block then because it's like the downhill bit. I can take my feet off the pedals and I can just coast down the hill. So that's easy, and that's that's you know that I don't block on that because it's fun. I like the idea. I think you think you well, like the idea, but it, the, the the notion that it's an idea block rather than a writing one, um, I think that makes more sense. I think I think sometimes I think sometimes the notion of writer's block is is a romantic one to make someone feel get a bit of angst. But in reality, the reason yeah. you stop doing stuff is because you just you can't think of what to write. So that's that's a that's a solution, a, a problem to solve. Not yeah, and I think a lot of people. I'm sure it's worse for people who do drama, um, because they're they're talking much more about people's feelings and, and emotions, and uh, you know how would I react if this thing happened and my you know my wife turned out to be my sister and then this happened. I can see why that would lend itself more to block to writer's block, but my stuff is. You know, it's uh, explosions and chases and, and uh, you know, people being dispatched in terrible ways and, you know, this happening and that. It's, it's kind of, it's much less, there's less depth to it. I mean, there still needs to be a depth to it. I'm not completely, I'm not uh, minimising the fact that you have, you're have you dealing with real people who have real feelings, but I think it's harder to get blocked on my stuff. So let, let's let's talk about your stuff then. Um, so, Grand Theft Parsons was that the first movie of yours? First script of yours to be made into a movie, or actually, it was. Um, or was it second? It was the first. No, it was the first. It was the first script of mine to get made into a movie, and I'm just just thinking it. Um, yeah, it was the second script I ever wrote, I think, or the third script. It was really early on. I'll tell you what happened with that. That was really interesting. Um, I <coughs> decided to leave the advertising agency, and I and I was going to write scripts because, of course, you just go and write a script, and it gets made, and that's how it works, or so I thought, because I was massively naive. Hmm. So I, um, I was thinking, well, what am I going to write about? What can I first script B and I'd always heard this story about this guy who stole his best friend's body and and drove it across a desert somewhere to set fire to it to fulfill a promise that they'd made each other some years earlier so I did a bit of research and discovered that this was a real story and that the the, the body that was burned was that of Graham Parsons um, and then the man that set fire to his body was a guy called Phil Kaufman and I managed to somehow, and I can't remember how, I managed to get Phil Kaufman's phone number. <laughs> so I rang him up. <coughs> and he answered the phone, and I said, I'm a screenwriter from London, and I would like to write this story. And, uh, and he hung up on me. Um, so I rang him back up, and I said, I think we were cut off. Um, I'm a screenwriter from London, and I'd like to... And he said, I don't really talk about this over the phone. If you want to talk to me about it, you'll have to come over and see me. And I'm in Nashville. So, and then he hung up on me again. So um, I thought, uh, okay, 
uh, I'll do that and I'll go out and see him. So I rang him back a couple of days later and I said, right, I'm just about to book my ticket. Uh, whereabouts in Nashville are you? And are you around on the such and such a day? And he said, yeah, yeah just ring me when you get to the airport. And yes, I am around. So I just, <laughs> I bought my ticket. I flew out to Nashville. What he later told me was that this had happened 20, 26 or 27 years earlier yeah. at that time. He said that about 200 people had tried to buy the rights to write the script, and he had turned all of them down. And I didn't realize this. I thought he was going to be really impressed by the fact that I wanted to write this story. Um, so I just kind of went out there and assumed that I would get the rights off him. So I... I landed. At, excuse me. I landed at the airport. Rang him up. He sounded a bit pissed off, but he said, "Okay, you can come over." And I went over, and I was, you know, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'd love to do, you know, blah blah blah." And then uh, we talked about it for some time. And I said, "What do you think?" And he said, "Well, I'm going to have to think about it." And I said, "Well, that's cool." I said, "Listen, I'm here for the next three days. Um, why don't we just meet up in the morning, and we, we, you know, we can talk about it some more?" And he looked at me as if I was insane. He said, what do you mean you're here for the next three days? I said, well, I didn't know how long it would take, so I booked to go back on Thursday. And he said, what are you going to do for three days? And I said, I'm going to sit with you, and we're going to go through what happens, so I've got everything I need. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, again, you know, he just, he was so astonished that this irritating man just had come out flown across from, from, you know, Farnham to, um, to Nashville and, and then wasn't going to leave him alone for three days. And over the course of those three days, I wore him down uh, <laughs> to such a, a point that he eventually gave me the rights. And so I came back and I wrote the script <coughs> and then I brought in a producer and a director. Um, and, uh, you know, the way it went. And that came out, that was a film that came out in 2003. It came out 2000, <coughs> I might have come out in 2004, I'm not oh. sure. But initially, we had, um, what's, the, what's um, the guy, who's the guy that plays the sort of wolf thing, and X-Men and all that sort of thing, the Australian? Hugh, Jack Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman, he was signed to be, uh, uh, to be Phil Kaufman, and um, uh, then he, the amount of time between... X-Men 2 and something else he was doing was sort of decreasing and decreasing and eventually there wasn't a big enough gap for us to do our thing so um, he then had to step off um, but we were getting phone calls from loads of people it, it, the script went around Hollywood and people liked it and it was really easy to cast and I kind of thought well that's, that's how you do it, it's really that easy you just write a script and people want to make it I didn't realise that I got really lucky with my first one. Can I just ask you a quick question there about the process? Yeah. You, you you said about when you go to see him and he was happy to sell you the rights. Are you sell, are you are you taking the rights to his life story or a book he'd written about that experience? He'd written a book about about his oh. life and wanted the bit that was about um, uh, what he did to Graham Parsons. Okay, got you, got you. Now fast forwarding then the the. the Last last year, reading the the sort of spec sales news and stuff, you you featured in there with a film called The Drop. Yeah, which which has really pissed me off. The <coughs> Why? Dennis Lane's film um, with James Gandolfini and, and Tom Hardy. Yeah, uh, I did get confused. Which was called Animal Rescue. Mm. Um, suddenly, just before it was released, <coughs> became The Drop. Mm. It really pissed me off because that was the name of mine and. It's a much, mine works much better than that does. Uh, there's no reason for them to call their film The Drop, really. Mine, uh, I'm so furious, <laughs> really annoyed that we have to come up with a new title. Um, but that's a real, that's the real time movie that I yeah. mentioned earlier. Um, and basically that's the story of a, uh, of a cop, uh, an L.A. cop, or he might be a New Orleans cop, I don't know, but one of those two, I think, mm. who... Uh, uh, middle age, you sort of, you know, not a young gung ho cop, but one who, who's been around the block a couple of times. Um, he's just about to finish his shift, and he gets involved in a chase. Uh, he doesn't know who, really what's going on, but there is this chase, and he chases this guy. And his knowledge of the area means that he's the guy that that catches the fella, hmm. um, and he has him at gunpoint. And the guy reaches into his jacket, and our cop shoots him and kills him. 
Um, and then we, we learn that this guy is a, a kidnapper who has kidnapped the young daughter of a wealthy couple and uh, uh, <laughs> this girl is buried somewhere in the city in an airtight trunk and he was going to the money drop to pick up the cash uh, and our guy has shot him. Um, and so he then feels that he has to try and find this child in the time remaining before her air runs out. But she could be anywhere in the city. And, and so we follow him on his journey uh, in real time uh, as he tries to save this kid. I can see what you mean now about high concept. My word, that's it's sort of instant, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, it has to be. I think with action film, <coughs> it really has to be. I mean, that's... Because if you can't tell it straight away, bang, this is what it is, and if it doesn't sound different from anything else, there's no point doing that work. Because really, however good the writing is, they're just desperate to say no, these people who buy things. And they're just going to say, oh, you know what, I can't really see it, or it's too close to such and such, or, you know, it just doesn't push their buttons. It's got to be it's got to be really high concept, I think. Well, yeah, certainly in the, in the like you say, the when you when you differentiate between those people who are writing drama, I mean obviously yeah, drama yeah. is a very different cell altogether. But certainly genre movies exist on on some sense novelty, don't they? Novelty is what people go. Have you seen? Have you seen? Yeah, <laughs> that's the way you describe them, isn't it? Nobody goes, oh, wasn't it a wonderful character breakdown? It's more... yeah, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now I'm just I'm interested in, in in the other part of your writing, which 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 um, I know we're flitting around in your sort of career line here but you you wrote a video game you're involved in writing a video game as well battlefield 2 and i just wondered from a screenwriting point of view how did that differ you know working with video games developers and you know compared to working in the process of making a film it it differs um primarily the big difference is that it's non-linear so um uh you have to it's it's entirely different way of writing um um basically what we did was we we knew, I wanted to make it about um, perception, propaganda, rather than just a gung-ho action thing. Right. So um, what we had was, you know, to just to distill one little bit. So if you ha- you're told in one mission that you have, to, uh, you have to blow up a building by a bridge because it's got a heavy arms depot in there and it's threatening your troops. Yeah. You switch, the point of the game is that you switch sides each time, each new level, you switch to the other side. Uh So you're told you have to blow this building up and you blow it up and then you switch sides and you start off in the building and there are children's shoes with smoke coming out of them. Uh, And your people are telling you that this was a school and that the enemy have just hit it. And so... It was all about perception of right and wrong and, and who was right and who was telling the truth and what the truth is in war. And we tried to elevate it into a slightly different thing than just a let's kill everybody um, and stick a flag in the ground and then we've won kind of thing. <laughs> um, but it, it, that's how it differs. It's non-linear, so you have to work out a, your your characters, your protagonists' progress um, in a completely different way to that that you would use for a movie. So are you are you coming up with these scenarios? Are you giving these flag posts and saying this is where we are? No, well, in that game I did come up with the scenarios. Uh, but yeah. I worked with designers, um, and quite often they would, they would, you know, I'd work very closely with them, so it wasn't always me. Mm-hmm. And also um, sometimes they would say to me, well, that doesn't, we can't do that because, you know, this, that and the other. So it was a, quite a collaborative process. So, um, what, are, what, what are you up to at the moment? Anything you can talk about? Any, any, anything on the horizon that we should know about? Well, I've just finished a thing, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm about to deliver, called, uh, called Bad Water. Okay. Which is um, a bit risky. It's a risky thing to write. It's a massive film. Uh, I mean, if, uh, obviously, the more money a thing is going to cost, the less chance you have of selling it. So, uh, because it's a bigger risk for people. So I thought it'd be a really good idea to write a movie that would cost $80 million or so to right. shoot. And that's what this is. It's a huge, uh, massive, 
feature film, it's a studio picture, we've got two movie star roles in it, um, it's different from anything else that's out there, um, and, you know, it's a big risk, because um, how many of these are made every year, you know, nice. and so the chances of selling it are are smaller, but it's, but it, I'm really pleased with it, and my people are really pleased with it, they really like it, um, and so, you know, we will see whether it uh, whether it sells or not. But I'm about to deliver that, and I think it's going to go out probably next week. I only write for America, really. I don't tend to write um, British films because um, they don't pay enough. They take the same amount of time as American movies, and they don't, and they pay less. So is the process for you very much about delivering the work for your agent to then? Get out to people who are looking for scripts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've got an English agent and I've got an American manager, and they work in, in concert. Ah, okay. Okay. Anything else you want? To, anything else you want to mention? Um, <coughs> uh, I've sold a, uh, a film uh, to a company called um, The Solution in LA, uh, and it's called uh, Blank. Um, and again, I'm not sure if I, 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 I guess I can say it's it's about a guy who wakes up in a strange country um, with no memory of who he is, um, and he's um, a naked and in a packing case. Um, and as he tries to work out what's going on, somebody is trying to kill him. Uh, he's in a Kowloon actually, and so he has to try and find out what's happening and who he is before he is killed. Um, and so that's... Uh, that seem like a deadline. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, again, you know, there's that high concept thing and, and hopefully... No, totally. Um, that, you know, that they bought that... Um, I mean, thinking of that idea, I mean, what we were, were you, so, did that, are you, walk, you know, you walk into the shops and you go, do you know what, boom, in a packing case naked, he doesn't know who he is. So well, it's, it's just, him. it's just what if, you know, what if. Yeah. What if a bloke woke up in the middle of nowhere with no memory of who he was and somebody was trying to kill him? You know, it's really easy. Uh, yeah. It's just what if. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not being disingenuous. Uh, I, I'm in, it's entirely uh, uh, reasonable. That, you know, if you just say what if, you can just come up with these things. They're not easy, but they're not hard either. What if? And you just think of the most difficult thing that you can. Um, and then you try and work out how it's like a you know you're a, a, an engineer. How do I? How could you? How could you do that? How could you make that work? And you sit down and you noodle about with it. And uh, and if you can do it, and you can do it in such a way that it is entirely reasonable for the viewer, then you're there. You know, you just all you got to do then is write it. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, finally. We like to ask our guests about uh, to recommend as a British movie. Uh, okay. Either a classic one that's often overlooked these days, or or one that you think has been missed and really people should try and find. I've got four. Go on. Am I allowed four? You can have as many as you want. We, okay. we want to promote British films, so you you, you uh, tell us. I think um, uh, I don't think any of them are. Uh, well, one of them is a classic that people might have missed. One of them is Gangster Number One, which I just love. I love the energy of it. I love mm. the way it starts um, to, you know, to camera. This walk to camera. I, I love everything about it. Is great. The, the characters are brilliant. Uh, the violence is visceral. Um, the story is terrific. It's engaging on every level. It's a really top class movie, and it's one that people really don't seem to talk about very much. And I like it a lot. I think I think it got I think it get, got lost in the kind of general disdain for British gangster movies, whereas yeah. it is actually a tip. You're right; it's a tip-top movie. Now, I mean, where where else would you see a bloke being battered to death from his POV? I mean, how brilliant is that? Uh, you know, I love the fact that he's he's being killed in this room with a by a maniac who, who beats him and uses an axe on him, <laughs> and you see his last two minutes. Through his own eyes, as this occurs, I think that's great. I love it. Um, number two, number two is uh, Bronson, 
which is uh, a film that people do know. So yes. it, I'm cheating a bit with that. But it's a really... Tom Hardy is great in it. It's a good film. Um, number three is Dead Man's Shoes, which is a film that uh, I think people have overlooked somewhat, and it's a terrific movie. Uh, and number four is my classic with a gay uh, villain, Richard Burton, in the film Villain, which uh, is something, if you haven't seen it, you should see it, because it's terrific. I've not seen that one at all. No, what's that one about? Uh, it's about um, a homosexual uh, criminal who has um, to come to terms with who he is and what's happening in his life uh, uh, in, a, in a number of different ways. Um, and it's... Uh, I think people didn't like it, actually, because they didn't want to see Richard Burton being gay. I think in those days, you, you were kind of who you were, and he was this tough fella. And uh, I think it freaked people out a bit. But he was brilliant in it. Uh, and it's, um, it's a gem. So uh, you should watch it. I really. think I'll be looking that one out. Yeah, I mean, the, the Winding Refn one, Bronze is fantastic. And Dead yeah. Shoes, I've featured in a, in a British horror film uh, list we did for the site. Um, right. Because I think it's a, it's a genuine, you know, it's a proper... Proper British horror film, I think. What what what? Uh, Shame. Nobody she... saw it. I don't understand. Nobody saw it. <clears throat> I think that has. I think that has a lot to do with how cinemas work. But you know, that's for yeah. the discussion. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Pleasure. Very much appreciated. I think there's a lot, a lot to, uh, lot, lot to uh, think about there in terms of uh, the process. And I certainly, I mean, I wish I was as diligent, and maybe I should be in my uh, in my own writing process because I think that's those those hard yards you talk about obviously reward in terms of the fun you have writing the, the next two months of writing the script I guess yeah and then you don't have so many rewrites you know mm. people are constantly rewriting stuff I don't I don't have to do that because I've done all that terrible fucking stuff right early on it, it just makes it much easier the whole thing is easier nice one well look thank you very much alright Stuart pleasure if you don't already subscribe to Britflix just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 